Hi everyone, my name is Cora Howell. I know that you've likely heard my name on a few episodes as I've had several discussions with Todd that have, you know, either through Discord or phone turned into episodes that have you have heard on the show. Tonight's episode was different though because I actually helped to write the episode, which I actually am very honored by. Rather than write about trans people, Todd actually brought me in and included me as a representative of the community. I want to thank him for this because often our voice is not heard. We are written about rather than with. This episode is different. He included me and I think that's what makes this episode so much more meaningful. To hear this information spoken about shows the truth of what is happening. The evangelical right is looking to erase the trans community. The conclusion of this episode speaks so true to me. The trans people that you may hear spoken about on the news can seem far off and separated from the day-to-day of everyone's life, but we exist. We're real people. I'm one of those people. Our voice needs to be heard even if for a moment before we could be silenced quite permanently. To the audience that's listening, Rick's comments may seem ridiculous, but they are reaching people who listen to him, and in doing so, I'm slowly being dehumanized to them. That is why rather than focus on anything specific in this episode or even read part of the episode myself, I want to just make a statement here to be one that simply shows that I'm human. A statement that shows that I am a person. One that's afraid but not willing to hide for who I am. When that pastor said that he wants us to be lined up and shot, he's not just talking about anyone, he's talking about me and people like me. And while this episode tears apart the arguments that the Christian right is making, those statements are affecting the people who they reach. Well, I don't know what the future holds or if the future that the Christian right is proposing will come to pass in any way. I can't just stand by when those statements could incite a future in which my community no longer is allowed to exist. Since coming out as trans, I've been more happy about who I am than at any point in my life. I've come so far, having been the president of a church congregation who has turned into a transgender communist and Satanist. This podcast and the people I have met on this journey are one of the things that have allowed me to make this change and to finally, honestly find happiness. Regardless of how hard this message is to hear, I want everyone to hear it and realize that while transgenocide is a dark subject, the light that comes from the community of trans people that I am a part of far outshines anything that can be thrown at us. And with the help of, you know, the many people that are out there fighting for us, we can actually do something about it. That's all I have to say in the context of this episode. I again want to thank Todd for letting me be a part of this and for helping to write it. I have my own podcast called Satanic in Nature. It's a little less formal, a little less philosophical, but It's more focused on the lived experiences of those who are satanic. I would love to have you there to hear more about that and hope that I get to collaborate more with Todd in the future. To everyone, stay safe and hail Satan. Content warning. This episode will feature extensive discussion of transphobia and homophobia. In March of 2022, Senator and former Florida Governor Rick Scott released his new 11-point plan to reshape the Republican Party. 
it's clear from this that Scott has aspirations beyond his current Senate seat. With this plan, he has set out a vision not just for his home state of Florida, but for the entire party of which he is a member. His plan, as outlined on his website rescueamerica.com, is not mere political strategy, but rather a comprehensive vision for the future of America. Given all of this, we are led to ask from what lens he is viewing this country in the first place, and one need only look at his words in order to understand that perspective. The specific points in Scott's 11-point plan are as follows. Education, colorblind equality, safety in crime, immigration, growth and economy, government reform and debt, fair, fraud-free elections, family, gender, life, and science, religious liberty and big tech, and America first. Each of these is worth examining in itself, and we recommend that our listeners look into them. As an example, point seven, Fair, fraud-free elections obliquely references the big lie that Donald Trump won the 2020 presidential election, and Scott's take on this warrants an entire essay in itself. In this essay, we'll be looking in particular at points 8 and 9, family and gender, life, and science. The website's main text for point 8 family reads as follows. The nuclear family is crucial to civilization. It is God's design for humanity, and it must be protected and celebrated. To say otherwise is to deny science. The fanatical left seeks to devalue and redefine the traditional family as they undermine parents and attempt to replace them with government programs. We will not allow socialism to place the needs of the state ahead of the family. Point 9 reads, Men are men, women are women, and unborn babies are babies. We believe in science. Men and women are biologically different. Male and female, he created them. Modern technology has confirmed that abortion takes a human life. Facts are facts. The earth is round. The sun is hot. There are two genders, and abortion stops a beating heart. To say otherwise is to deny science. Clearly, these assertions are absurd on their face. However, we believe that the motivation and theory behind them are worth examining closely, because they reveal something crucial to the psyche of the evangelical right. Hail and welcome to A Satanist Reads the Bible. You heard from Cora at the top of the episode, and it has been really fantastic to collaborate with someone who can add this kind of personal perspective and lived experience to the work of this show. The end result is a top-tier episode of really important work that I could never have done on my own. The primary purpose of A Satanist Reads the Bible for me is a vehicle and container for my own education and betterment as a person. And few episodes I've done have provided that as much as this one. Cora 
is an inspiring Satanist, an amazing human being, and a great friend. And I'm honored and grateful to be able to share her thoughts with you. Based on the title of the episode, you may have already guessed that our conclusions from our research are quite pessimistic, and I want to mention to any queer friends in my audience who might be listening to this, first of all, you have both my support and my admiration. Just existing in an adversarial world is a challenge, and I admire anyone who perseveres through that however they can. Second, if you're a queer person in crisis or need some additional support, I've got some resources for you, and I'm also going to list these at the top of the transcript at asatanistreadsthebible.com. There's the Trevor Project Lifeline, 866-4U-TREVOR. That's 866-488-7386. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, at 800-273-TALK. That's 800-273-8255. And the Trans Lifeline, 877-565-8860 in the U.S. and 877-330-6366 in Canada. If you're in the Phoenix area, you can check out Transgender Arizona on Meetup. Cora is one of the group admins for them. And again, I'll have a link in the show description and in the transcript post that will connect you to more resources. Please use these resources if you need them. I'm a veteran with PTSD, and I never would have made it this far if I hadn't sought help in dealing with those issues. It's not weakness. On the contrary, it's the height of wisdom to use all of the resources at your disposal. This work is made possible in part by my patrons on Patreon who make small monthly contributions to help fund things like research materials and recording equipment. We've also got Jace Featherston on the roster. Thank you so much, Jace, for your support. Really glad to have you. Patrons have access to the show's Discord server, where we've hosted many great conversations, some of which have resulted in full episodes. Stop by patreon.com slash Bible to learn more. My goth rock project, Cyrus Dark and the Symbols of Reverence, has released a new album, Flowers for the Mass, now available on Bandcamp. I was dithering on whether or not to even include any self-promotion in this episode given the gravity of the subject matter, but that project has been an outlet for a lot of my feelings of frustration towards the religious right, and so it seemed appropriate to share. It should be up on streaming platforms as well within the next few weeks. If you've heard the Cyrus Dark EP, I think this is a huge step up. I'm really proud of it, and I see it as being, in many ways, an extension of the work that I do here. So if you enjoy my work in general, I hope you'll check it out. And now back to our episode, The Evangelical Campaign for Queer Genocide. The year 2021 saw the murder of... 375 trans people around the world. Trans people make up 1.6% of the population and are four times more likely to be murdered relative to the general population, in addition to being disproportionately targeted by harassment and other crimes. 
As of this writing, there are 149 anti-trans bills being considered in state legislatures throughout the country. In states such as Arizona, where there are presently 12 anti-trans bills on the table, it feels overwhelming to face such opposition to one's basic identity. Suicidality is dramatically higher among trans and non-binary youth, and rates of homelessness are far higher among the trans population than the population in general. In light of these statistics and their demonstration of trans people as an oppressed and marginalized demographic, we have a senator with clear aspirations for national leadership stating that trans people violate the sanctity of the family, that trans people violate the natural order, that trans people are worthy of hatred, scorn, and derision. Rick Scott, seeking to pander to his base, is constructing trans, non-binary, and queer people as a public enemy. Again, openly trans people represent approximately 1.6% of the American population, and yet are on the receiving end of an enormous amount of ire, prejudicial hatred, and legislative discrimination. So much so that Florida Senator Rick Scott has made them a central point in his 11-point plan for America. It raises the question, why would such a small group of people warrant such attention and vitriol? In order to explore this question, let's begin by looking at what it is to be gender nonconforming in the first place. And in order to explore that, we'll begin by looking at the concept of gender. The objective situation is that there are basic biological differences between people based largely on genetics, which manifest as physical differences that are typically broken down as a sexual binary of men and women. The reality of this sexual distinction is more complicated than this binary designation would indicate. And then on top of this, society constructs a structure of expectations, cultural meanings, social roles, and entire life paths based on perceptions of this distinction. As an example, certain people with certain chromosomal configurations and the physical traits that most commonly manifest from these configurations, whom we call boys, are socially expected to perform certain behaviors, such as participation in school sports, whereas those with another configuration, whom we call girls, are expected to engage in different activities, dress differently, play with different toys. It's fair to say that every aspect of one's life is informed by the social perception of this underlying sexual distinction. And while the underlying differences between humans are real, the social universe we've constructed around these differences is exactly that, constructed. It does not have an objective reality, but rather exists purely as an intersubjective phenomenon. To understand this, consider that there's nothing physically preventing a boy from wearing a dress. The only problems that are going to arise from that are social. Gender is the word that we use to describe this social construct. It describes a system of beliefs about people, including self-directed beliefs, which are commonly believed to be based on the objective physical differences already mentioned. 
In reality, these beliefs are based more on the forceful assignment of people to gender roles by society in a way that may or may not match one's underlying self-perception. There may, for example, be a disconnect between one's personality, preferences, and self-perception, and the assumptions about those things made by society based on the person's physical traits. Such a disconnect is gender nonconformity. In such a case, one might strongly identify with the gender roles and assumptions which are typically assumed as belonging to those with other body types, or may not identify with any gender roles or assumptions at all. Traditional gender roles are more likely to be challenged by younger people with an entire 5% of the population under the age of 30 identifying as gender nonconforming. Here would be a good place to address some terminology. Bear in mind that we're not presenting these as absolute universal definitions. As these are complex concepts with a large amount of room for interpretive difference, rather, we present them as working definitions. For someone to be transgender is for someone to have a gender identity that does not match their assigned sex. For example, one might be assigned male at birth, but be socially, in every respect, a woman, and such a person would then be a transgender woman. In contrast, one whose gender identity matches their birth assignment is cisgendered. Remember point nine from Rick Scott's plan. Men are men, women are women, and unborn babies are babies. We believe in science. Men and women are biologically different. Male and female, he created them. He states that to say otherwise is to deny science. This is flatly false. As we have already mentioned, there are objective biological differences between people. However, the construction of these differences, which are not themselves neatly binary, into the social categories of men and women is not an objective reality. Scientific research clearly reflects this. To begin with, this statement completely ignores the biological reality of intersex people, people who may have physical traits of both or either sex, and whose genetics might not line up with the sexual binary structure assigned by society. According to sexologist Anne Fausto Sterling, intersex people who may meet any one of 22 different medical criteria listed on the Wikipedia page, which discusses intersex people, may represent as much as 1.7% of the population. This means that if Rick Scott's assumption that gender is equivalent to biological sex is correct, then there are at least 24 different genders corresponding to male, female, and the 22 intersex variations listed in the Wikipedia page, and so we can say that Scott's assertions are mistaken even in their own terms. Beyond that, gender incongruence, which includes transsexuality and other gender nonconforming identities, has been the subject of scientific study going back at least as far as 1919, the year of the founding of Magnus Hirschfeld's Institute for Sexual Research in Berlin. 
And while scientists have not uncovered any single factor which on its own causes one to be gender incongruent, they have revealed numerous objective biological factors which are clear influences, including genetics, brain structure, and prenatal exposure to particular hormones such as androgen. According to a 2013 study by Milton Diamond, in a full third of cases among identical twins in which one twin is transgender, the other is as well, compared to a prevalence of only 1 in 38 when the twins are not identical. This strongly indicates that genetics are a significant factor in gender incongruence, though not the only one. Contra Scott's statements, the science shows that sex and gender are far more complicated than the matter of anatomy, and that there is an empirical, scientific basis for the phenomena of trans identity and gender incongruence. Rick Scott is not only making erroneous claims about the science of gender, but supporting those statements with scripture. Male and female he created them, Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 and chapter 5 verse 2. One might be led to believe, based on this, that such a perspective is the clear and historically prevalent alternative to the more complex, modern narrative supported by scientific research. That from the moment of God's creation forward, gender has been a simple matter of male and female, and that that understanding has only recently begun to change. This is far from the case. As mentioned in the prior episode, The Lessons of Ancient Egypt, the pharaohs Hatshepsut and Akhenaten were portrayed in contemporaneous artwork as having androgynous features. Hatshepsut was depicted in some statues wearing the royal false beard, and Akhenaten broke with centuries of artistic tradition in order to portray themselves using the gender-neutral pronoun here to avoid any assumptions about their gender, with features such as wide hips and breasts. The Roman emperor Elagabalus, assigned male at birth, preferred female pronouns and offered vast sums of money to any surgeon who could provide her with a vagina. In contradistinction to Scott's preference for looking at the Western cultural tradition as if it were natural and universal, we can look to the traditions of other cultures to find a much broader and more complex understanding of human gender and sexuality. For example, the Bugis people of Indonesia have, for at least six centuries, recognized five distinct genders. Oroani, cisgender males, Makunrai, cisgender females, Kalalai, female men, Kalabai, male women, and Bisu, intersex. Considering the Bugis perspective on gender may clarify the concept of gender as a social construct. Were gender purely empirical and biological, one would expect all cultural perspectives to converge on a single understanding. However, being that gender is a social construct, we see exactly what we would expect, which is a multitude of different perspectives between different cultures. Other examples include the two-spirit people of indigenous American cultures and the Hijra of India. There is even at least one example of a differing perspective on gender within the Christian tradition, the Skopsi of Russia, dating back to at least 1771. 
who believed that human genitals were a mark of original sin and so surgically removed them. In contradistinction to this scientifically informed, nuanced, and compassionate view of human diversity, we have numerous examples of the Christian evangelical movement advocating for the outright execution of anyone who deviates from their patriarchal norms. To take one example, Pastor Dylan Oz of the Steadfast Baptist Church in Hearst, Texas, said the following, What does God say is the answer, is the solution for the homosexual in 2022, here in the New Testament, here in the Book of Romans, that they are worthy of death? Every single homosexual in our country should be charged with a crime. The abomination of homosexuality that they have, they should be convicted in a lawful trial, they should be sentenced to death, and they should be lined up against a wall and shot in the back of the head. This rhetoric is extreme, but it is far from uncommon. In order to inform my work, I regularly listen to Christian AM and FM radio. And while nothing this extreme ends up on the air, the general discourse is of much the same nature. A suggestion, implicit or explicit, that queer and trans people are subhuman and worthy of exclusion, torment, and even execution. I'll remind my listeners that radio broadcasts describing the ethnic Tutsis of Rwanda as cockroaches and calling for their deaths were instrumental in the Rwandan genocide of 1994. Let's go back to Rick Scott. Men and women are biologically different. Male and female, he created them. Facts are facts. The earth is round. The sun is hot. There are two genders. To say otherwise is to deny science. Well then, if we accept Scott's claims, what are we to say of people who claim that they are of a gender different than what God appeared to have created them as? What are we to say of someone who claims that they don't fall into any clearly defined gender category? Clearly, the implication is then that these people are not part of God's creation. They are something other, perhaps something demonic, an enemy to be rooted out and destroyed. Let's shift here to a discussion of another political group who found it convenient to construct a public enemy, the fascists of the mid-20th century. We'll find that this description is true not only of the Nazi party of Germany, but of the Italian and Spanish fascists as well. To understand the parallels, let's first consider what fascism is. Far-right, authoritarian, ultra-nationalism. Much of German fascism was constructed based on the work of political theorist Carl Schmitt, who defined the political as the distinction between allies and enemies. As mentioned in many episodes of this show, the political theorist Samuel Huntington and many others have described how we construct our identities in part through the identification of our enemies. Being ultranationalist and deeply obsessed with a sense of unified national identity, this identification and construction of enemies is central to fascist ideology. The fascist leader identifies an insidious threat outside of or within society, often both, and convinces his followers that he has to be placed in a position of absolute power and authority in order to deal with this threat. 
For the Nazis, the Jews, who had long been stigmatized in European society, made for a convenient enemy. Less known is the Nazi persecution of the LGBTQIA community. Fascism is a patriarchal cult of strength. It fetishizes power and authority, and male power and authority in particular. The leader can then, given a fascist-leaning mindset among the general populace, construct the LGBTQIA community as being a threat to patriarchal masculinity and to traditional values, and it was this cult of tradition that Italian author Umberto Eco listed as the first feature of what he called Urfascism in his famous document of that name published in the New York Review of Books in 1995. We've already mentioned Magnus Hirschfeld's Institute for Sexual Research as an example of the more progressive-leaning values towards the LGBTQIA community present in Germany prior to the Nazi takeover. This institute was raided on May 6, 1933, by the paramilitary wing of the Nazi party, the SA, the Sturmabteilung. Four days later, the institute's library of over 12,000 books was publicly burned on the Opernplatz in Frankfurt, a massive and tragic erasure of an enormous wealth of history and scientific information about LGBTQIA people. The objective, of course, was the erasure of the people themselves. Between 1933 and 1945, approximately 100,000 men were arrested by the Nazi government on charges of homosexuality and then subject to incarceration, torture, castration, which was offered as an alternative to other punishments execution, or imprisonment in the death camps. Now, let's return to Rick Scott and the rhetoric of the American Republican Party. Rick Scott is using a framework of what he asserts as tradition, tradition predicated on a particular interpretation of Christianity in the Bible, to construct LGBTQIA plus people as a public enemy. This traditional interpretation of Christianity is decidedly patriarchal, with men established throughout the Bible as the natural heads of household and leaders of society. This mirrors the patriarchal cult of strength of fascism, and gay and lesbian people, trans people, intersex people, bi and pansexual people, asexual people, and queer people in general are constructed as being a threat to this vision of the Christian male leader and to Christian tradition. Rick Scott, remember, is, just as with the fascist leaders of history, insisting that he be put in power so that he can deal with this threat. This is by no means limited to Rick Scott. The book Jesus and John Wayne by Kristen Cobes Dumay is an extensive and detailed account of the relationship between Christianity and patriarchal male headship. There is a widespread and concerted effort among conservative politicians in Texas, just to name one example, to erase LGBTQIA people from public discourse. Books which discuss issues relevant to this community have been banned. Doctors who provide gender-affirming medical care and even parents who raise their children 
in a gender-affirming environment have been threatened with state legal action. The state of Texas has ordered the Texas Child Welfare Agency to investigate the families of trans children. The intent of this last legal effort is entirely clear, to remove trans children from families who love them and accept them for who they are so that they can be placed in environments which reject who they are and which will inevitably seek to reprogram them to confirm to the traditional expectations of an increasingly authoritarian and patriarchal society. Elsewhere in Florida, we have the famed don't Say Gay Bill, which aims to remove all discourse concerning LGBTQIA people from the educational curriculum in an effort to erase them from the public consciousness. Supporters of the bill will correctly note that the words gay, homosexuality, and the like are nowhere present in the bill. But this is entirely the point. The wording of the bill is so vague that almost any discussion of human sexuality and gender identity, even including a gay teacher mentioning their husband in a casual offhand way, could potentially be construed as violating this law and subjecting the teacher to personal and criminal liability. One of the key tactics used by fascists is obscurantism, the use of coded language or vague legal doctrines which conceal their true objectives. This bill is a clear example of exactly that. A key aspect of this program is the use of religion, which is part of the broader cult of tradition already mentioned. The specific religion in question is, of course, Christianity, and there's a great article on the Human Rights Campaign website that deconstructs various passages in the Bible as they relate to trans and gender issues and identity. Rick Scott mentions Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 in particular, and here's the response to that from the aforementioned website. In between day and night, we have dawn and dusk. Between land and sea, we have coral reefs and estuaries and beaches. Between flying birds and swimming fish, we have penguins and high-jumping dolphins, not to mention that uncategorizable favorite, the platypus. No one would argue that a penguin is an abomination for not fitting the categories of Genesis 1, or that an estuary isn't pleasing to God because it's neither land nor sea. In the same way, God gives every human a self that is unique and may not always fit neatly into a box or binary. End of quote. The entire first chapter of Genesis is filled with binaries, but as we can readily observe, the whole of nature exists across various spectra. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 5, God separates day from night, and this is presented in the text as being just as much a binary as the creation of male and female in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. But of course we never see an immediate transition from day to night or night to day, but rather a gradual shift from one to the other across a duration that cannot properly be referred to as being strictly day or night. We have words for these durations, of course, dawn and dusk, but even these do not encompass the full depths of the transition from day to night or night to day. When more specificity is required, such as for the purposes of astronomical observation, dawn and dusk can be subdivided into further categories, 
astronomical twilight, nautical twilight, and civil twilight. The Bible does not mention any of these categories. However, they undeniably exist, and if we were to take the position that day and night were created by God, we would have to take the position as well that the spectrum between them is part of that creation. We can apply this exact thinking to the concept of gender. The Bible specifically mentions the creation of male and female, and as we discussed, there are people who do not fit neatly into either of these categories, and there is no reason to assume that they are not just as much a part of the diversity of creation as dawn and dusk. One might also mention Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 5, A woman shall not wear a man's apparel, nor shall a man put on a woman's garment, for whoever does such a thing is abhorrent to the Lord your God. One might read this as being a prohibition against what we would refer to as gender-affirming clothing choices and what might be referred to in a more derogatory fashion as cross-dressing. We have to remember that the ethical codes presented in the Old Testament are largely concerned with the differentiation of the Israelites from the other peoples whose lands they cohabited. Beyond this, the verse does not stipulate what a, a woman or a man is, or what constitutes their respective apparels, and, at least with regards to apparel, fashions have changed somewhat over the last couple thousand years. Are we to take this verse as stipulating that men wear robes, as was the fashion at the time? Beyond this, things that are considered traditionally feminine today, such as high heels and makeup, were originally invented for use by wealthy men. There are numerous other prohibitions presented which we have largely acknowledged are no longer relevant to contemporary life. These include not touching women who are on their period, Leviticus chapter 15 verse 19. Bathing after any ejaculation, Leviticus chapter 15, verse 16, and not wearing clothing made from two different fabrics, Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 11. Leviticus chapter 11, verses 7 through 9, prohibits the consumption of pork and shellfish, and while Jewish people still hold to these prohibitions, Christians in general do not. The Human Rights Campaign article also presents a brilliant response to these verses. Beyond understanding why this verse was originally penned, a more pressing question for Christians to ask is whether or not we are supposed to follow the prohibitions present throughout all of Deuteronomy. The answer for most Christians today would be no, on account of the theological conviction that Jesus, through his life and death, has fulfilled the requirements of the laws Moses presented at Mount Sinai in the story of Exodus, and because they do not believe that maintaining the integrity of God's creation prohibits mixing. In fact, the incarnation of God as Jesus, the mixing of the fully divine and the fully human, is often viewed as the necessary context for humanity's salvation altogether. Christians who maintain non-affirming perspectives on transgender and non-binary people must ask themselves why it is that this command is being upheld when they believe that most, if not all, of the other directives around it have been nullified. End of quote. The article includes several other responses to arguments predicated on Bible verses, and we highly recommend that listeners read it for themselves. 
Most centrally, we can look to their exposition of Galatians chapter 3, verse 28 from the New Testament. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. This verse clearly speaks against any attempt to separate humanity into categories which may be described as more or less holy, more or less close to God. This verse states explicitly that the matter of sex and gender is simply irrelevant to the matter of salvation. Once again, we find the Christian right making claims about the Bible which do not reflect its actual contents. If we are to take the Bible as authoritative in the first place, there is no room in that position to deny or ostracize anyone based on who they are. The Bible verses being wielded by Scott and by others in his party have been selected and divorced from their textual and historical context so as to provide ammunition for their hateful agenda and to provide a religious groundwork for a transgenocide. They are in no way being honest about or authentic to the message that they claim to hold above all others. We've covered a lot of ground here, so let's sum things up. The Christian evangelical right is fabricating enemies in order to stoke fear and galvanize their base. Not only constructing an enemy for them to use to gain and consolidate power, but attacking a beautiful part of the diversity of nature. The music video of the song The Village by Rabble, which has become an anthem for the trans community, includes the following quote. In nature, a flock will attack any bird that is more colorful than the others because being different is seen as a threat. For Rick Scott and his political allies, trans and gender nonconforming individuals are a convenient way to stoke fear and gain votes. But we have to remember that these political targets are first and foremost people. People who, under sometimes violent threats from the rest of society, choose to be honest about who they are and to live openly according to that reality. There is a powerful, inspiring courage in the trans community that emanates from every single person within it. This is a courage that lifts up all of humanity. Scott's position, on the other hand, is pure cowardice and has no purpose beyond weaponization of humanity's lowest fears of that which they find different or other. Putting all of this together, our unfortunate and terrifying conclusion is that the American Republican Party and the American Evangelical Christian Movement are laying the groundwork for a trans and queer genocide. As Satanists, and as decent human beings, respectful of human liberty and dignity, we must fight against this by whatever means necessary. We certainly hope that this outcome never comes to pass. And if it doesn't, our guess would be that that victory resulted from the deliberate actions of anti-fascists, queer activists, and those who will risk anything to protect human life. If, however, such a thing does occur, people will look to our time to understand the foundations and the rhetoric that fueled it. And they'll point to exactly what we've discussed in this episode.
The pattern we're seeing today is a pattern that has emerged time and time again through the recent history of humanity. And it has often preceded the horrors of our worst nightmares. That's all for today. Thanks again to Cora for doing this work with me. I've got another episode almost completely written, and I'll be aiming to have that out early in July. This episode of A Satanist Reads the Bible was written by Cora Howell and by me, Todd Billsborough, and produced, edited, and scored by me with the support of my partner, Cora, and all of my patrons, and my audience. Glad you could join me today. Always thought the